This talk is called Walking Through Hell with the Creator. Last week we looked at creation, the first three verses. And in just those three short verses, God revealed himself to be the subject of the whole Bible, along with us, humanity. He revealed himself to be a a super creative God, able to create something as vast as the cosmos and as intricate as planet Earth. We met a God who is willing to come into chaos and darkness and hover over chaos and darkness and evil and confusion, and out of that darkness and evil and confusion to bring form and beauty and life and everything that we love about this beautiful planet. We learned that we have a God who is able to speak things into being with just the oscillations of his vocal cords. I love that description that I read from Mark Batterson, the way God speaks beyond our range, and he spoke everything we know into being. We also learned that one of the most fulfilling things we can do as a human being is to respond to our creator in worship as part of his creation, just to reflect something of that love and that value that he has placed upon us, just to reflect it back to him and to be one with our Creator in worship. So, moving forward through Genesis, we have the creation of man and the Garden of Eden. And we have God partnering with man in the continuation of his creation. So this super creative genius of our planet didn't want to finish it on his own. He wanted to share it with us. He wanted to continue to develop and to cultivate and to create form and structure and life with us. And he even allowed Adam to give everything its name. Having designed the DNA of all the species and how they would live, how they would move, how they would have their being, he then allowed Adam to name them. I find that astonishing. And then sin. And it changes everything. Sin enters like a cancer. And in 1,656 years between Adam and the flood, the human race becomes completely and utterly corrupt. It's fair to say that by chapter 6, the book of Genesis, God's humanity project was in a mess. You see the sheer power of sin. It's gone viral. Sin had worked its way through the whole human race like an epidemic. Or like as Jesus put it, like yeast through a batch of dough. It had just worked its way into every corner. The angels got drawn in as well. You see in Genesis chapter 6, the angels started having sex with women and producing superhumans called the Nephilim. It's, it's like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. And you can just imagine God saying, what? Really? Really? What's wrong with you people? This is not the plan and you know it. The degradation of humanity 
gets to the point where everywhere God looks, people are driven by lust and sin and pride and fear, and they've begun to rape and pillage the earth like parasites. They have spiritually mutated to become like a cancer to creation, destroying the life of a healthy planet one cell at a time. And God looked at this creation that was supposed to be the jewel of his masterpiece universe, and he regretted ever starting at all. God, our creative genius, who created for for love and nurtured the earth in its infancy, like a father, at this point is heartbroken. His sons and daughters have become rapists and serial killers. Let's read from chapter 6 and from verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I ever made them. Jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them along with the earth. Sounds like a frightening place to live, doesn't it? Everyone on earth is a predator. No one is safe. You could be robbed or killed or have your children taken from you at any time. The fear on earth must have been unbearable. And God looked at that situation and he just knew that it was never going to become what God had dreamt that it would one day become if it carried on in the same vein. There was just so little left to salvage. It was either scrap the whole idea and let the earth stand void again or restart it again in some way. There was no plan C. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Have you ever started a project that you've got a a vision for, whether it's an artistic project or uh, a business project or something like that, and you've, you've begun and you reach a point where you stand back and you look at what you're making and it's not fully formed yet, but you realise that you're way off and it's never going to become what you wanted it to be. If you start uh, uh, to, to draw something or you start to design something and you get part way and you're just frustrated because you think, what, what I've got here I can't really work with. And you just want to scratch it all up and you want to just throw it away and you want to just put it down to a first prototype. That was my first attempt, it went a bit wrong, but I'm going to start again, and I'm going to start a little bit wiser than I did the first time. Well, this is kind of where God is right now, in the book of Genesis. But thankfully, God doesn't just abandon earth 
or start again totally from scratch. He doesn't go back to Genesis 1, an earth formless and void, with no form or light. And I like to think it's because he's poured so much of himself into this little planet of ours that he cherishes it so much, possibly over millennia, that he can't bear to see it all just destroyed. He can't bear to see all of that love that he's lavished upon our planet go to waste. So he's determined to salvage everything that he can that is precious. So just to underline the mess, the word used for ruined here is a combination of two words in the Hebrew. One is used to describe something spoiled, like the spoiling of a garment, where something is torn or stained beyond use. And the other word that is clubbed together with the spoiled word is one used for sudden destruction, which is used throughout Scripture to describe like the sudden destruction of a people group or a city. In war. So the earth was permanently and violently ruined, destroyed. The term filled with violence is an important one too. Often used in scripture to describe oppression as much as physical brutality. The exploitation of the weak by the strong. The poor by the rich. The naive by the clever. Let's welcome these guys to church. <laughs> welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> Come on in, find a seat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Gordon Wenham explained that chimas, which is this word for violence, means cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate and making use of physical violence and brutality. God sees all of this. He sees where it's all heading, and he says, enough. He draws a line. God is at his breaking point. He will not let suffering and abuse Continue indefinitely. How do you feel about God's wrath? It's a difficult one to get your head around, isn't it? A God who hates evil with a vengeance. The Bible is shot through with verses like these. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword and he will bend and string his bow. King David says, you hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and the deceitful, Lord, you detest. Or this one, Yahweh examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. What? God hates people? But I thought God is love. I can't believe God hates people and wants to destroy them. Can he? How do we reconcile those two things? 
John Mark Homer said this. Notice who God hates. The wicked and those who love violence. Imagine the terrorist in the shopping centre with bombs strapped to his chest. The con artist ripping off the elderly widow. The corrupt politician. The abusive father. The date rapist who gets off scot-free. The paedophile who gets called uncle. When people say to me, I can't believe in a God of wrath, I say, yes, you can. Every time you read about a child sold into prostitution by her family, and every time you, you hear about yet another oil spill by a careless, greedy, multinational corporation, every time you read about rape or murder or genocide, think to yourself, this isn't how it's supposed to be. A line has to be drawn somewhere at some point and he's the only one who has authority to draw it over the whole human race but you know what it actually takes a lot to get God angry if you're going to provoke God to anger you've really got to work at it in Exodus 34 God talks about his anger and patience to his friend Moses and he says this in Exodus 34, starting from verse 4. It says, Mo Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a, a, sorry, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's God describing his own character. Slow to anger. The phrase in there, slow to anger, is an absolutely wonderful one. It's Eric Apayim. And it literally means long of nostrils. <laughs> I love that. So this translation, slow to anger, does a great job of capturing this ancient word picture. Just think about what happens when you lose your temper. This guy, John Mark Comer, explains, your chest sucks in and you, you take in a gulp of air and your nostrils flare out as you verbally up, on, unload at your victim. But if you're slow to anger, when you get mad, you shut your mouth, you purse your lips, and you breathe in through your nose. So it's like a... <laughs> Do you want to try that? Yeah. You feel the anger, you feel the rage, but you don't release it. Instead, you suck it in and you hold it there because you have learnt to control that rage. If that's familiar to you and you have learnt to apply restraint when your buttons are fully pressed, then you are Eric Apayim. You are long of nostrils. Slow to anger. God is Eric Apayim. You can make him mad, but you have got to absolutely work your socks off to do it. Just think of God's treatment of Nineveh for a moment. So in Jonah's day, Nineveh was 
one of the most disgraceful nations on the earth. Nineveh was known as the city of blood, described in scripture as full of lies, full of plunder, and never without victims. Apparently it was particularly famous for amputating hands and feet, gouging eyes, and skinning and impaling captives from weaker nations. Are you enjoying all this? How does God treat them? First thing he does, he sends his best prophet to warn them. Eventually, he gets Jonah there. Eventually. And when Jonah says, God sees what you're doing, you need to change. What do they do? They change. Which is a miracle in itself. God gives them a warning. He gives them an opportunity to live differently. And then he empowers them to carry through on that decision to live differently. And the nation temporarily changes. If only the story finished there. See, history tells us that in a very short space of time, Nineveh reverted to becoming the city of blood that it had always been. And uh, 150 years on from where Jonah announced that God is coming in judgment and they had that initial change of heart, he sends another prophet, the prophet Nahum. And Nahum prophesies against Nineveh that it will be destroyed. Six years later, after he releases that prophecy, Nineveh is absolutely annihilated by the Babylonians. And so the, the archaeological site of Nineveh is different from nearly all other archaeological sites of that time because it is absolutely destroyed. It is ground to the dust. There is so little there in the city of Nineveh that is left for us to look at. In the end, God said, that's enough. It took it a lot to provoke him to that anger. It took a huge amount even with repeated attempts to help them to change. But at some point, God said, okay, enough. Enough. I'm drawing the line. His nostrils are long, but they have a limit. And I wonder sometimes if God's nostrils are long enough for this world as it is at the moment. In Noah's day, God was appalled at the violence, oppression of humanity, and the disregard of his love for creation. Are things so different today? Let's take violence to start with. Is that a problem? According to a brilliantly researched book released in 2004 called 50 Facts That Should Change the World, a third of the world's population is at war. A quarter of the world's armed conflicts of recent years have involved a struggle for natural resources. Landmines kill or maim at least one person every hour on our planet. And right now there are an estimated 300,000 child soldiers fighting in conflicts around the world. More than 12,000 women are killed each year in Russia as a result of domestic violence. Can you imagine that? 12,000 women. And in China, in 2004, it had 44 million missing women on its missing list. Some 120,000 women and girls are trafficked into Europe every year. Slavery has never been so widespread in the entirety of Earth's history. 
There is an estimated 27 million slaves in the world today. How long are God's nostrils over our planet? What about oppression? According to the World Health Organization, every day, one in five of the world's population, some 800 million people go hungry. One in five on our planet live on less than one dollar a day. And where Apple soars into the business stratosphere, when this research was collated, more than 70% of the world's population have never heard a dial tone. Can you get your head around that? Contrast that information with the fact that in 2001, 13.2 million Americans had some form of plastic surgery. And in that same year, golfer Tiger Woods was earning $148 per second throughout the entire year for playing golf. Oppression is global and growing. There are 44 million child laborers in India alone. 44 million. How long is God's nostrils over our race at the moment? In Noah's day, the world was corrupt and selfish. How's this for corrupt? In Kenya, bribery payments make up a third of the average household budget. And the world's trade in illegal drugs in t- was, in 2004, estimated to be worth around $400 billion, about the same as the world's pharmaceutical industry. Isn't that interesting? America spends $10 billion a year on pornography, the same amount it spends on foreign aid. There are at least... 300,000 prisoners of conscience in the world. Is God able to restrain his frustration with us? It's all right. And then we have the systematic destruction of God's carefully designed creation. We have destroyed much of the rainforest and we're wiping out species every day. We demand global produce even if a kiwi fruit flown from New Zealand to Britain emits five times its own weight in greenhouse gases. And then there's the plastic packaging crisis. America alone discards 2.5 million plastic bottles every hour. That's enough bottles to reach all the way to the moon every three weeks. And there is now an island of mostly plastic rubbish in the Pacific Ocean that spans more than 600,000 square miles. 600,000. Can we stretch our feeble brains around that? 600,000. Just to get some perspective, the whole of the United Kingdom is only 242,000 square miles. This island of waste floating in the ocean is as big as France and is growing every day. This combination of global warming and waste plastic has the power to annihilate annihilate ocean life and cause widespread famine and natural disasters across the globe, which will always hit the simple farming communities in the developing world the hardest. So that's destruction of creation and oppression of the poorest communities 
by the wealthy and wasteful all in one big issue. Let me ask you one last time. How long are God's nostrils over us? Can God restrain his righteous anger over our race? Does God not sometimes look over all these things and regret once again that he ever made man? As he did in Noah's day. Maybe. It's sadly true that there are large parts of the earth that look more like hell than heaven. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed by the dysfunction of the world and to feel paralysed by it, isn't it? As I've shared that list, do you not feel, well, what must we do? These problems are huge and they are systemic. God told Noah to build a boat so that the hell on earth could be wiped away. God said to us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, you are the light of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt in Jesus' day was the preservative. It was the thing that people used to keep things from decaying and rotting and going sour and bad. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the preservative of my creation. It's you. You are God's plan for this planet. Those who follow Christ and have received his spirit upon us. And Colossians Colossians 1 makes it clear that he made peace between God and humanity through the blood of his cross. That he might reconcile all things to himself and redeem the earth. And then he placed the secret to renewal in our hands and he called it the gospel. Come on in, guys. Come and have a seat. So Noah was a man who had a conscientious character. He had a love for God. He had a real sensitivity towards God. And he was able to walk through the hell that was on the earth at the time with clean hands. And he was able to partner with God for change. Do you know what? I think God is still looking for the Noah spirit on the earth. And I want to shout out this morning that that Noah spirit is in us. It's in those whom he has chosen to be the preservative of the earth. You and me. It's really easy to see this power of the gospel, this Noah spirit, alive in the church today. We could look at all sorts of people who have taken it seriously, this call to be salt and light and transformation of the earth. I want to finish by just using the example of Heidi and Roland Baker. Who knows about Heidi Baker and Roland Baker? We don't know, we've talked about these guys in church before, but um, they're a real inspiration. So Heidi grew up in Southern California she became a Christian after hearing a Navajo preacher, preacher's message whilst volunteering in a Choctaw reservation. So uh, a, a Native American preacher. She met Roland Baker, the son of a missionary family, in 1979, and they married six months later in 1980. They didn't hang around. 
They left for the mission field two weeks after that with their hearts burning for the, uh, to work for the redemption of the earth with God. In 1980, the Bakers founded, founded Iris Global, a non-profit Christian ministry dedicated to practical service and evangelism in developing nations. And in 1995, the Bakers moved to Mozambique in order to begin a new ministry focused on the care of orphaned and abandoned children. A year later, Heidi Baker became sick with tuberculosis and pneumonia. But despite her doctor's recommendation, she went to a healing meeting in Toronto, in, Cal in Canada. There she had a vision where Jesus showed her thousands of children to feed. When she exclaimed that it was impossible to help them all, he said, there is always going to be enough, because I died. After which, she was immediately healed. Iris Global negotiated with the Mozambican government to assume financial and administrative responsibility for a former government or orphanage near the capital city of Maputo. There were roughly 80 children pre present, and since that time, Iris Global's operations have expanded to include well drilling, free health clinics, village feeding programs, the operation of primary and secondary schools, cottage industries, and the founding of more than 5,000 churches in Mozambique with a total of over 10,000 Iris-affiliated churches in more than 20 nations. Their ministry is known for the miracles that God has released through them. And in September 2010, the Southern Medical Journal published an article presenting evidence of the significant improvements in auditory and visual function amongst subjects exhibiting impairment before receiving prayer from this ministry. Love that. These are just a shining example of the Noah spirit. Those who are able to walk through the hell of this world and not just sit on our hands, but to say, God, what do you want to do? How can I take the little bit I have to affect some kind of change? With regards to nature, how can I walk lightly on the earth? And with regards to humanity, what, what can I do just to make a difference and to be part of the redemption of all mankind? The gospel has the power to address every dire situation that I've mentioned this morning. It's the most powerful and precious thing that God has given us. And we have it in our hands. The light of the world, the salt of the earth, the hope of the world. Never give up. This world is too important. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, none of us are perfect. And we acknowledge that at different times in our histories and sometimes in our lifestyles, we can be part of the problem. But Father, we don't want to be. We want to learn to cherish this planet as you do. We want to be reflective people that know how to avoid the things that will oppress people that are beyond our vision. 
Father, we want to have one ear and eye in the developing world and one in our own. And we want to learn to, to live in such a way that every human being on your planet can thrive. Lord, show us how we can truly be a church that the gates of hell can't prevail against. Father, thank you that you have such long nostrils. Thank you for your forbearance with us. And thank you, Lord, that you gave us Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you received judgment so that we don't have to. Thank you that you sucked in the world's brokenness within yourself as you hung there on the cross so that we could start to move towards wholeness, that redemption of everything is now possible. And then you put your spirit within us to empower us to affect that change. Lord, I still can't quite believe that the redemption of the earth is placed in our hands. I still can't quite believe that something as precious as the gospel is. You ask us to carry it. It's like you have blessed us so much, like, you, like Adam naming the animals. You've just brought us right into the heart of what you want to do. And so, Father, help us not to take that lightly, but help us to do what Noah did, to walk humbly with you, to walk righteous before you, and then say, God, what do you want me to do? Help us to be a redeeming power wherever you've placed us and whatever you've asked us to do. For your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.